0: Hey, flamethrower Shireen here. Football has begun. And when I say that, I don't mean proper football. I mean American football. And to discuss this, this week's guest is Dr. Daniel Selofsky. He is a lecturer in criminology and sociology at Middlesex University in London, whose research examines gender and gender-based violence, masculinity, sports sociology, and labor, And the sociology of law. Daniel has also worked as an assistant coach in both women and men's basketball at the Collegiate Level in Canada and is rooting for the Aces and is a huge Toronto Raptors fan. And we love that on this show. Welcome. Dr. Zalowski.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so, so happy to, to be on with you. Big fan of the podcast.
0: Um, so before we get into the really important stuff, like your piece that just came out in The Guardian, and I'm really interested to know more you as somebody who are not only research and talk about systems in the NFL, you are a fan. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about who you rooted for, how that started, particularly you being Canadian. How did that start? And then when did you start? studying it
1: yeah so I'm uh, I'm a Canadian I was born and raised in Montreal so this is actually important for the uh, the football part of it because when you're in Canada and you're it's this is the early to mid2000s and don't have a satellite dish or don't have one of those fancy packages the NFL you get CBS Fox and the one o'clock four o'clock games generally and there's just a few teams in the Northeast that are generally the teams that are on at that time so it's the New York Giants the New York Jets Um, the Miami Dolphins, the New England Patriots, the Buffalo Bills are on a lot as well. So basically the NFC East and the AFC East divisions. And I became a New York Giants fan, the 2000 Super Bowl against the Ravens, and the Giants got absolutely crushed in the game. But um, my dad always taught me, like, you should cheer for the underdog in games. So I was like, okay, the Giants are the underdogs, the Ravens have given up, like, Twelve points in the entire playoffs at this point so okay I'm gonna be a Giants fan I was a somewhat of a Giants fan um in elementary school and then when high school started made some friends who are also NFL fans and I kind of made that a part of of making friends and you know talking about our favorite teams one guy was an Eagles fan one guy was a Cowboys fan same division as the Giants so that kind of Expanded the fandom um, a little bit. Became a big fan in high school. It, it didn't hurt that they they won a championship in 2007 and then 2011. So that was a lot of fun for me um, as a football fan.
0: And was your family historically a fan too? Because a lot of the time, uh, NFL fans, it's like a generational thing. Like they inherit the fandom. Like me, I'm a Habs fan because of my mom. Right? Like I grudging. <laughs> yeah. Begrudgingly
1: a Habs fan. I am a begrudging Habs fan as well. That I got from my my dad and from my parents for sure. But they didn't really have a football team. Interestingly, my my grandmother, who I I never met, she she passed when my dad was 22. She was a huge Miami Dolphins fan. Wow. Yeah, very weird. But it is actually more common than you'd think that um, Jewish people in Canada become Miami Dolphins fans because they travel to Florida Uh, in the wintertime, and the Miami Dolphins are there. So it's more common than you think, and the Miami Dolphins were really good in the 70s. So a lot of people's parents um, are are fans, but I always tell the story about how my grandmother, she used to knit socks when the Dolphins were playing or when the Habs were playing, and when she would be really nervous, she would knit, like, super fast. So whenever the Habs were on a playoff run or anything, my dad would have, like, 20 new pairs of socks always because she would just, that was her nervous habit while she watched the games.
0: So your Bubby is, like a huge NFL. I love the Sox story. I love this story so much. Yeah.
1: I never met her, unfortunately. Um, She passed, but she was a huge house fan and a huge Dolphins fan. My dad always says it's too bad that we never met because she was a much bigger sports fan than my grandfather is, who's still alive. But I actually wasn't a Dolphins fan. My best friend growing up was a Dolphins fan. And so I would go to his house a bunch during my high school years and kind of early 20s. And that's a little bit something I mentioned in the piece, which is part of the ritual of football as well, which is as much a part of the fandom, I think, as just the game. Like, I love the strategy and kind of the the cat and mouse game between coaches and, and that kind of thing. It's always been appealing to me. But just the ritual of football is also has been really important to me. I think it's really important to a lot of people. So the idea of, of hanging out with your friends on Sunday. Um, and this kind of is something that brings people together, um, in a lot of ways, not just the people playing it, but people watching it. So I had the tradition of going over to my friend's house, 1 PM Eastern, make sure we're there before that. His mom would cook up a, a feast of food, which is like another commentary about kind of gender roles. She would be in the kitchen and we'd be watching the game, which is not the greatest. Obviously, but she would cook up this feast, we would hang out, I'd hang out with his brother, with his dad, other friends would come by too. And this is something I did every Sunday, every of every football season for years. So honestly, losing that is just as big a part as anything else. I live in London now, so it's um I, I wouldn't have that anyways, but Group chats, um, a point of conversation. Losing that part of football is honestly just as big as as anything else.
0: And your decision to not watch football anymore after being a fan and having this like history of like community and fam like familial ties through sport, which is quite common as well, is you know really interesting because you talk about having a more critical eye after learning more about it and and, and studying sociology, but also looking at the systems about it. And like you said, whether they're public spending and these are all things that we you know go into depth and and burn it all down but stadiums you know something you talk about a lot in the article is also CTE and the concern about that and the effects that it has and the unknown effects that we actually don't even know how much further things can go. But you know, you, you point very much to that. And, you know, like the concussion epidemic, as you call it, which is like very much foundational in the sport, because it's literally a sport where you bash your heads against each other. So like how do you reconcile and you you're talking about your difficulties. So essentially this is about you breaking up with 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 football right now. You're separating right now from football.
1: That's it. It's funny in the first draft of the article, that's sort of what I wrote about. I actually had a line in there. Something like breakups are hard even if you know it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Right. And it, it is that kind of thing. I sometimes I feel a little bit like self-righteous talking about it in this way, but it is still, it's a relationship I've had with an institution and with a with a sport for a long time. And, and it is I'm, I'm severing that relationship. Um, but but it's because of the things that that you've talked about and that I've, I've written in the article, which is it's just become really it's become too hard for me to kind of ignore and and unsee kind of the harms that that come with the sport. It doesn't hurt that there's other sports and there's other kind of amusement and 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 fun that I can get from other places, right? Like I watch a lot more women's basketball now, which is still going on. I watch a lot more basketball in general. Um, still, losing football is is a is a big one. But the moment for me really happened, I guess, this summer. I've been doing some research for a project that I'm working on, and. I really started digging into some of the concussion stories more so than just the statistics. So I kind of, I I knew about the statistics and, and I mentioned this in the piece, but it's really one thing to know statistics and it's one thing to, you know, hear that a bunch of NFL players are filing a lawsuit against the NFL. There's this many players who have CTE after and it's another thing to actually hear the stories, and this is when really good investigative journalism comes in, and is so important. And you hear the stories about players who are, you know, forty-nine years old, and mm-hmm. when they, after dying, the report comes out that they have the brain of a ninety-year-old with Alzheimer's, or that one of the players in the last days of his life was occasion, that the, one of the quote is occasionally catatonic in the fetal position for days at a time.
0: Wow!
1: Knowing that this is the legacy of football for a lot of these men, and in seeing the kind of different reaction and different understanding of their own careers that a lot of these men have after is o- it's over, it, it became just impossible for me to swallow. I remember even the moment I was just sitting there reading this and reading another piece about another player who committed suicide or a player who um, died in prison or players who uh, were suffering from dementia in, in their 50s. And I just remember thinking, like, I cannot continue to support this. And I said that it was months ago now, but now's the time, I guess. And And... And yeah, that's sort of, that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. Um, but there's a whole bunch of other issues associated with football as well that we can definitely get into. And these are things like the labor issues and the way that players are paid and not paid at the collegiate level. Um, the way they deal with violence against women, right? The way that there's this profit above all ethos in the NFL and in, in professional sports at large, where players can be, are kept on teams or they're still acquired as long as they continue to perform no matter really what the allegation of violence is against them, and that's another issue that we see in the NFL. So this this is the kind of um, combination, this cocktail of of harm and violence that really pushed me towards this decision. Where I mean, I'm not I'm not some hero because I'm deciding not to to watch football, but it's it's the decision I made, and I want to kind of explain why that decision is important to me and why I think it, maybe other people it'll be important to them too.
0: So there's, there's two things like well, that I wanted to expand on. Is one that I understand very much what it's like to have a turbulent relationship. <laughs> on and off again, and I've tried to break up with the Habs many, many times. Thanks, Jeff Molson. Like really, that whole situation. That last cup
1: run pulled us in, eh? Pulled, pulled us in us again. In, and yeah. My
0: mom, and then just it was a lot. And then either they draft Logan Mayu, and I'm like, I'm out. I'm out so many um, layers of that of drafting someone who didn't want to be drafted someone with a sexual like assault misconduct record like you know no there's so many again layers of that but just like this idea of why why do we feel we need to explain our decisions with this is it like does it? Where does that come from? Does it come from the communities we're part of? Is it like this sort of self-loathing at the time? Like, because I felt very much the same way. I've gone again. I talked to my mom about this for the podcast. Why are we stuck here? And why do we feel the need to explain why we, when we decide to leave?
1: It's a really, it's a really great question. What I haven't, I haven't really considered. But the first thing that comes to mind is just the elevated place that professional and elite sport has in the world. Is it's such a cultural touchstone where it's expected that you'll at least have a passing knowledge of a lot of things Uh, it's expected that the great game that happened yesterday that you will have watched it right and there's just especially for people who have been sports fans before you are kind of part of this community and one of the other reasons I think that people expect and maybe this is a bit cynical of me but I, I think that when you leave, it forces other people to consider their own staying. And I don't think people want to do that necessarily. And it's not a comfortable thing to do, right? It's not uncomfortable inc- to interrogate your own, uh, tacit involvement or your own involvement in any way in systems of harm, right? It's the same way that people don't want to consider necessarily, um, the exploitation that might be going on behind some of their favorite consumer products, right? Because people don't really want to, to deal with that. And, when other people leave the sport institutions that they're also fans of, it forces a little bit, sometimes, maybe it does, forces an interrogation of some of that.
0: Exactly. And I think that's that's one of the things that we do. We interrogate so much on the show, but then we also have, we struggle with it. Like, we love this. Like, I will have a continual struggle with the Men's World Cup. And the Women's World Cup, as a result, I'm a huge lifelong soccer fan and player, but that entire mafia, like, cis, like, organization is corrupt to the hilt, but then how do I reconcile that? And I've spoken with this at length with uh, Dr. Jules Boykoff, who's, you know, a friend of the show. Absolutely. And I'm like, Jules, like, how do I do this? And, he, you know, he spoke with me once about this and said there's a way to not, and we were talking about the Olympic context, but athletes don't have a choice of where they go and where they decide. And, you know, there's layers of it. And like I say all the time, and I've learned from academics on the show and my friends who are academics in the community. It's complicated, Daniel. Like it is, but people
1: hate that response. But <laughs> it's, it's I mean, We often search for these kind of binary good versus evil narratives. But I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of evil out there, and there's a lot of good. But it, but the institutions themselves are so mixed up with both that mm. it's not really possible to uncritically love something and an uncritically. When I say uncritically, I mean without without at least thinking about and talking about when it's necessary some of the inequities and some of the the harm that's involved, right? The the FIFA example is a really really good one. Like, you love football, of course, and more than that, I think is another thing is that you love the players, right? And and that's oh, yeah. part of how I at least think about it in my own way. I do think of it from kind of a labor perspective, right? So I think about the fact that do I dislike a lot of what Amazon does? Yes. Do I do I have a problem with like the people, the most of the workers at Amazon? No, not at all. I understand that they're working um, because they have to and they're and they're doing with their life what they can given the structural constraints that are that exist there, right? And it's the same with athletes. Like and I write this a little bit in the piece and I don't I can't get into it as much as I would like to. But the difficult part is, is that I want to see the players who have been sacrificing their bodies actually get paid properly for their work.
0: Yeah, you talked about compensation.
1: Right, I want to see them be emotionally and socially fulfilled. I want to see them be treated fairly and equally, but at the same time, the institution itself is rotten. And that's a really hard um, situation to kind of reconcile because you have these two competing interests and you want to support the workers the athletic workers who are doing this labor, who are suffering, who are being exploited in a lot of cases. But at the same time, you don't, You, as I said, I want to find another way that these athletes can get that same economic stability, that emotional fulfillment, that community without having to bash their brains in for it, right? Without having to sacrifice years of their lives and, and more than just years of their lives, but years of good living, right? So maybe they live for a long time, but they have constant migraines or they have constant memory issues or their knees are unable to move properly so they can't play with their kids and their friends kids right all these other issues and I want to find a way I'm I'm hoping that we can find a way to have sport have the fun and the competition and the joy the community have all of that without having the exploitation and the the destruction of people's bodies right that's the kind of difficulty that we that we live in
2: Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: You talked about the players and it being workers who use their bodies. What about evil that it emanates from those players like sexualized violence because it does come up. Like we've talked about Watson a lot on the show, but you mentioned the Buffalo Bills is something you got to see and watch. And I'm in Toronto and there's, because of the proximity to Buffalo, there's a lot of Bills fans here. And, you know, talking about the Buffalo Bills and player Matt Areza and the allegations against him, like I've seen people not care about that in the case of Deshaun Watson, I remember seeing a meme uh, that somebody had shared, and it was a picture of a father with a young son, and it said something it's awful, terrible. Like, I, just in the sense of dismissing the, all of the allegations and all of that behavior, all of it, just say, you know, we want to watch our game, we support our team, no matter what. Now, why is this issue with NFL culture so polarizing and is it just those systems of toxic masculinity that are prevalent here? Because that photo with that young boy was so upsetting. I expect that the father, there's fans that will do that. But to teach your son to dismiss allegations at all and dismiss women, essentially, what is that? And did that, how much did that play in your decision to step away?
1: Yeah, it played quite a big role in in my, in my decision not to, to watch anymore. And This is the crux of a lot of my earlier research and still research I do now about violence against women and and NFL players. And yes, some of it is the the masculine cultures, right? So the the toxic masculinity, the hegemonic masculinity that we see in sport cultures, whether that's hockey locker rooms, uh, baseball fields, football stadiums. It happens in all these places, right? Where there is this masculine culture that privileges this sort of dominant, um, physically violent, physically Superior and dominating form of masculinity where men are valued more for the, their control and dominance of women And we see that manifest in violence, but I think there is even more to it in, in the professional sport case Which is that a lot of these decisions are made not in, from any harm reducing perspective, right? Whether that's harm for the players or harm for the victims. It's made in a very crass dollars and cents decision Right. So we see players like Tyreek Hill, who had a, a violence against women allegation when he was in college. I think it was choking his pregnant girlfriend at the time, I believe. he then had a child abuse case with the the kid that was eventually born a few years later once he was already in the NFL. But he's a supreme supreme talent, right? There's no denying his his talents on the football field. He's probably the fastest player in the NFL. He's extremely valuable to his teams and because of that, he signed a hundred and twenty, I think it is, million dollar contract this past year for three or four years. i not, maybe I'm not getting the numbers right, but around there. And he's had an illustrious, and will continue to have an illustrious NFL career. And we don't always see that, though, in the sense that we don't always see every player who has an allegation just brush it aside. If a player is a third string tight end, if they're uh, you know the seventh offensive lineman or the eighth offensive lineman on a roster, teams do deem that they're quote unquote not worth keeping around, even if they've just been, if they've just been accused. And, and this is where some of the tension comes, I think, because you have this commentary from people who want to support the Deshaun Watsons of the world who say, hey, we live in an, a criminal legal system where we're innocent until proven guilty. So sure, Deshaun Watson's been accused 24 times by 24 different women. And there's even more women who have not accused, but have been, have talked to journalists, but that doesn't matter because, um, you know, he hasn't been tried in a court of law. And we, we deal with innocent until proven guilty. To be clear, uh, I'm talking about this this hypothetical person saying this. This is not me saying this. I hope that's clear. But that's the kind of argument we get on the other side. And, And what I will always point to is that if that even is an argument that you want to make, if that is an argument that you want to make and you wanna just completely decontextualize the situation, you wanna take away all the power relationships that exist between uh, a professional athlete backed by a multi-billion dollar organization, you wanna get rid of all that, and you wanna just say, well, the NFL should just deal with whoever's actually guilty, then we have examples on the other side where players who are not super valuable get cut instantly once there's reports of any kind of allegation of anything really, because they're just not valuable to their team, they're not worth the harm that they've caused or allegedly caused.
0: But I don't I don't hear about them. Like the, I it's very interesting to me that you're talking about this because I, you don't hear about them in mainstream media and Yeah,
1: there's sometimes stories, That's but.
0: part of the problem that you know sports media is complicit in these systems in the way like I don't hear about players just getting turfed. You hear about the ones that don't because like you said in the beginning of this conversation, it's profit at the top. Right.
1: It's, it's absolutely profit oriented. And teams know that like coaches do not keep their jobs for fielding the team of the nicest players. They f- keep their jobs for fielding the teams that win games. Right. So if coaches can decide that if they can in any way justify bringing a guy in, they will bring that guy in if he thinks that they can help the team win. And and this is stemming from the way that we think about our sports. Right. Where winning is so far the paramount, the most important thing that we have to deal with that, that teams have to consider. It's a logical, using these constraints, decision to keep these players around and then to cut players who've been alleged of anything, right? Who've been, if there's any allegation, and and they use those players sort of as props, right? They use them to say, hey, look, we really care about violence because we cut this guy. Sure, we probably weren't going to sign him to another contract anyways, but that's not important. We cut him because we care about violence against women. But it's like the Seattle Seahawks are a good example of this, right? They they cut Shad Wheeler horrific video uh, of a violent assault he had on his I think it was his girlfriend at the time cut the next day backup offensive lineman doesn't matter but the Seahawks had drafted a player a few years ago with the same kind of violent allegation right like so this this kind of propping this up and this decision up as, as an example of how they deal with violence against women, it's its just, it's disingenuous, I guess is the word I would use. It's not a—it's not really based in any kind of morality. Their decisions are not based in any morality. Sometimes the morality coincidentally lines up in the sense that it's the right business decision, but it's not based in any kind of uh, protection of women.
0: No, exactly. And I think that's really interesting because like. Isn't it like 45% of NFL fans are women?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a huge swath of women. I want to stress, though, there are lots of women uh, who – are not champions for feminist issues, right? Just being being having the identity is not uh, does not necessarily mean that you're going to fight for the rights of that group. I mean, we see we see examples of this all the time. Oh,
0: we know that we know that on "Burn It All Down," women absolutely uphold systems of toxic patriarchy. Yes, absolutely. Because sometimes
1: it benefits yes. them, right? And it benefits <laughs> them individually. I mean, we saw this. This is a different example, but the classic examples of of kind of white women who you know, did not support the advancement of women of color in in a variety of different fields throughout history, right? Choosing to solidify their own position and gain whatever small amounts of power they could get from their their status there. And so that's the first thing I'll say is that, yes, 45% of fans are women, but the NFL is banking on the fact that those women are also more concerned with the wins and losses, and they can stomach the, the violence. And frankly, they're probably thinking and probably correctly in some cases that many of these women are going to side with the view where these women are just out to get these men. They're out to get them for money. They're out to uh, ruin their lives, which is just it's such an absurd claim because they usually don't make that much money or any money from this. right? And the other thing is the idea to, to minimize what coming out as a survivor of violence actually does to a person. To minimize having to talk about this with the police, with journalists, in courts, it's just, it's atrocious to minimize what that actually entails and to say, oh yeah, they just, they just go, they tell their story and they make some money. Like that is such a fundamental misunderstanding of the trauma that's involved in being a, a survivor of violence and then having to talk about it, not just to your friends, your therapist, your Confidence here, but to the world to, to minimize that and say that oh yeah they just do it because it's it's advantageous to them it's it's frankly
0: ridiculous. Yeah, I think all those things are. I mean, I grew up watching my dad witness the Minnesota Vikings lose every week. He was a huge fan, and like he inherited that fandom because a CFL coach went, you know, from Winnipeg, went South and went to Minnesota. That's how my, his name is Bud something. I can't remember right now, but the history of that. A lot
1: of Bud somethings who coached
0: football. Yeah. Yeah. And so he took half the roster with him. So my dad, you know, got very connected to the, to the NFL that way. And I watched him lose. I mean, I went, I mean, I've clearly, I supported cap. So I support players. You know, Michael Bennett's a friend of the show. Like, like you say, you root for the people. And that's really interesting to me, like, you know, rooting for the people. So as you talked about in your piece, wanting that respect and that, you know, compensation for those players who's in that way, does it make you feel? And this is a bit, I'm not trying to press you here, but you know, this is a conversation. Do you feel like you're abandoning these players? Because at the same time, this is a podcast called Burn It All Down. We, Amira talked about this on our five year anniversary of rebuilding. So at the end of your piece, you say, I don't want to wait too long. So who are you looking to, to rebuild? And what about those players in the meantime?
1: On one hand, I, I think that my exodus from the game is not going to be, uh, it's not going to be the thing that makes so many people leave. So in that sense... The NFL is still the most popular sport in North America, uh, definitely in, in the United States. So I think from that perspective, they're not being abandoned. But I am still abandoning them, which is absolutely true. And I guess I would say that my my hope would be that the sport can be changed in a variety of ways that would make it more that would make it safer for players. Uh, that would give them more say in their own working conditions. That would give them more of the revenue. So having a league that's where teams are more player owned, where it's more worker ownership within the league and within the teams would be one avenue. And then just actually taking real tangible steps to change the, um, the violence of the game. Right. And to be clear, I don't really know how it can be done. I don't know how we can have tackle football the way it is. And the way that athletes are much faster, much stronger, much bigger than they were in the past. And actually reduce concussions in a meaningful way and reduce brain injury and reduce injury, right? There's always the line with football that the injury rate in football is 100%. You will get injured at some point. And is it possible that this is not a sport that we should have? I think about the way that we might look back at certain activities that we've done as human beings in the past. So like bare knuckle boxing or um, the way that uh, gladiators used to fight to the death, right? And we look at that right now as barbaric right we look at that as like oh my goodness I can't believe society let people do this I can't believe that people would cheer this on and sometimes I think will we look that way about tackle football in 50 years will people look back in 50 60 70 years and be like oh my goodness I cannot believe that we used to play this and it used to be such a big part of of culture where all these players were eventually you know dying early and living horribly after their careers. And we were just okay with it. So sometimes I think that maybe there's no way to change football, but that doesn't mean there's no way to change sport, right? I I do think that there's sports and there's ways that these players can, and and people who wanted to play football might find outlets somewhere else, right? Whether that's in track and field or volleyball or basketball. I mean, I think that there are other ways. And, And with football, it's just, it's very hard for me, at least to, at this point, imagine a version of football that is equitable and that is safe.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you have the evidence and you have the experience lived in academic to be able to back that up.
1: Yeah. There's there's a lot of evidence, unfortunately, and we're just getting more and more of it. And that's the other thing with the CTE and the concussion issues specifically is that we're just going to get more and more of it because there's no way to uh, diagnose CTE when people are alive. Yeah. So it's only postmortem, only when players agree to have their brains actually looked at. And I mean, the big study is from, I think it's 2017 where they looked at 220 something football players of any level. So that could be CFL, NFL, college, high school, any level, 220. And I believe like 190 something had CTE, but of the NFL players, which is 111 players, 110 had CTE, 110 out of 111. It's 99% over 99% actually. And so just, It's one of those things where it's like, we know the evidence, so we know it's going to keep happening. There's just, there's no way around this. Like, it it reminds me a little bit of the the climate crisis in some ways, where we know these these issues are going to be coming because we have the evidence, we have the models, we can predict it. But there's no real way to stop those. But there is a way to stop the ones that don't have CTE yet, the ones that do not have repeated concussions yet. So that's at least where where my thinking goes.
0: And I don't want to be you know, leave this note on a, on a sort of a sad thing, but you have embraced, as you said, women's basketball. So it's not as if you have this huge canyon of sadness and loss. Like you are literally, you love one of the greatest teams and you're good. So, I mean, I, I do understand and I'm glad you spoke about the historical and familial and community connections you have to the sport. And it is sad to have to do that, but knowing what you know, And doing what you do, this is, you know, they'd say responsible and, and I really do appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it. I think that this is this is what these conversations need to happen so people can make actually informed decisions. And one of the problems that I think sports media and as somebody who's, you know, actively in that is that all this information wasn't readily available. Two fans. It's a great point. Now we're seeing dissemination of that information and, you know, the merging of journalists and academics and Brennan it all down is, you know, huge proponents of that and having you on is really important. Thank you. I do, however, really want to talk to you about this aubergine peanut butter coconut dish that you made. Yes. So we're going to pivot.
1: I love a good happy pivot from the sad stuff. So um, <laughs> sad let's do it.
0: <laughs> so where did you find this recipe? Daniel, and tell me why it's so good, because you were talking about it before we started recording, and folks, let me tell you, I feel like I I need to go visit you and Dr. Madeline Orr, who is your wife, for those that don't know. We would love that. We would <laughs> so, love that. So tell me about this coconut dish.
1: I'm, like, a pretty good cook, not a great cook. I... I like more kind of homey dishes, but I love to scroll on Instagram and I just get so many food posts. My wife's a vegetarian, I'm vegetarian at home, so we've been getting more and more veggie posts and basically I just scroll around and when when I can't sleep sometimes, just not very good, but when I can't sleep or when I'm just... Whenever I have a little bit of time to just mindlessly thumb around, I'm just looking at food recipes basically. And I saw one where this guy was making peanut butter aubergine curry. They use aubergine to mean eggplant in the UK, which took a little getting used to, but eggplant is what we call it in North America. But it's peanut butter aubergine curry. Basically it's eggplant that cut up kind of diced, peanut butter, coconut milk, a whole bunch of spices. I believe it's a West African dish. I don't know um, what part, unfortunately. The guy in the video didn't actually say it, but he served it with coconut rice and with plantains. Um, so when I'm like really going crazy, I do serve it with the plantains, but I always make it with the coconut rice too, which is really easy to make much easier than I thought it would be actually. So that, that brings me a lot of joy as well. And it's probably Maddie's favorite dish that I make too. So she's always very pleased, which makes me really happy. And I still haven't made it for guests though. So I really, I would love it if you could, uh, come visit us in North London, maybe see an Arsenal match, Arsenal women's match they play a few matches at Emirates too that would be that would be a lot of fun but it is a good dish hope we're not hyping it up too much but I think it's a I think it's
0: a winner I'm so excited I love all that I love food talk Um, it's very important to me and London is such a great place to be for food yeah
1: we live in a good food area there's like any kind we have the grocery stores but we also have we live in a neighborhood in North London where like there's every kind of international grocery store so there's a like Chinese grocery store there's a few Middle Eastern grocery stores near us there's a big market of like fresh stuff there's it's everything you could want so we've, we've got some plans if you ever if you cross the pond and come visit us <laughs>
0: yeah. Haven't been across the pond in a while. I need to make my way there. We will put a link to his piece in the Guardian in the show notes. I recommend everybody read it. It's also it's something that I find I find the connections as well of Canadians who really are invested in the NFL and who study it or who like it. I find that really fascinating because you know we we're we don't have it here. We have our CFL here, and then that's a conversation I'll have with you another time yeah. because I love I honestly. We only need three downs. Yeah, why do you need more than that? It's also
1: a fast, faster-paced game. That's true too. Right, a lot of scoring. The wider field makes it like it's just passing all the time. Really, it's a fun, it's a fun game. But a lot of the same issues, unfortunately, that uh, that we've talked about. But it is a fun one to watch.
0: Yeah, and I'm so glad. And uh, you're the first person to ever agree with me on that. Everyone else is like, psh. So I'm really grateful. If
1: you got the best players to play CFL football, because it's true that the NFL still has better players, like better athletes. But if you got the best players to play CFL, I think it would actually be more interesting. And people would realize like, oh, this this version of the game is actually better. It's just that the athletes are better in the NFL.
0: I love that take. And I'm going to hold you to that. Um, Anyways, like I said, um, thank you so much for coming up, burn it all down. Where can our listeners find your work?
1: So you can find it on um, personal website, DanielSalofsky.com, but also on Twitter. Also just Daniel DanielSalofsky, the beauty of having a name that nobody else has is all the good handles are like readily available. There's like five Salofsky's <laughs> in the whole world. So Daniel DanielSalofsky, all one word on, on Twitter is where you can find most of it.
0: Thanks so much. And I'm someone who doesn't follow the teams or know everything, but I know about the issues in the and the systems in the in the NFL. So I really appreciate you coming to talk to me about it and explaining the way you have. So uh, look forward to seeing more of your work. And again, thank you for being a flamethrower and being on the show. Of
1: course. Thank you so much. Uh, Aces in four is my prediction, by the way.
0: <laughs> okay. I'm so glad you said that. That's all for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Versteg. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is a part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and tune in. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find a link to our merch at our bonfire store. And of course, thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world to us. And if you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burn it all down. We could not do this without you. Burn on and not out.